And now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Hey there, thanks for tuning in to another episode of 40 Acres and a Fool. My name's Cam, it's good talking with you. Uh, Coming up uh, over the next hour or so, we'll uh, discuss a piece in Salon about uh, not being able to make it as a small farmer. It's it's actually, it's... um, Something that's that's worth reading before uh, you start to uh, think too deeply about uh, being able to not only provide food for your family, but uh, an income for yourself as a small farmer. Uh, speaking of that, one of the you know sad uh, things about uh, farms going away is there are uh, estate sales, there are auctions, there are a lot of them coming up here in the uh, spring. And it was something that uh, we, we actually went to a few uh, the first year that we moved here, and I, I, one of my great finds actually came as a result of a meeting somebody at a, uh, an estate sale here not long ago. So in our Forgotten Book segment this week, we're going to talk about a book that I picked up actually not far from the 40 acres. Uh, in, in addition to uh, what's going on on the 40 acres, and we have a sick goat that we have to uh, talk about. Unfortunately, Mr. Freckles, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really touch and go. Um, Quite literally, actually, now that I think about it. But we'll talk about what's going on with Mr. Freckles a little bit later on in the hour. Also, uh, I don't know if you saw this story. This one sort of bubbled up to the surface. It's kind of rare that you actually see stories about farming uh, pop up in the national news or or in the blogosphere. You know, farmers just sort of do their own thing, right? Uh, and, And they do it far from... The Times Square media, they do it far from Hollywood and, and Los Angeles. They do it uh, far from Washington, D.C., uh, at least the uh, the minds of those uh, folks who uh, who live and work there. So rarely is it that we actually see a farm story pop up in the news. But one did this uh, past week or so uh, about, uh, and, and I apologize, I mean, this is just this is what it is here, uh, queer farming. Did you see the piece about queer farming? There was a, a lecture, actually, a talk at uh, Berkeley, of course, on uh, queer farming. Uh, but not only was there the lecture that a lot of people were talking about, but Modern Farmer magazine had a uh, an interesting piece on queer farming uh, as well. So I've got some thoughts on this, and, and I got to tell you right off the bat, they're probably not the thoughts that you're uh, that, that that you're thinking of. Uh, but I, I've got some thoughts that I want to share about queer farming and straight farming and farming farming, which I think is the most important form of farming that there is. So we'll uh, we'll get to that as well. We've got a special birthday wish for a uh, Virginian who lives not far from the 40 acres that I uh, want to uh, talk about as well. Uh, and more of your emails. I Thank you. So much. I love hearing from you. This is awesome. Uh, so the email address is 40acrefool at gmail.com. And I, I am hearing from uh, more of you. So if you don't mind, I'd like to start the show just by sort of opening up the mailbag, so to speak. Uh, Kyle wrote in from uh, Sandy, Oregon. He said, Cam, I love the new show. Uh, and first of all, uh, Kyle's email uh, addressed uh, sure makes it sound like Kyle was uh, in the military. So Kyle, I'm going to go ahead and thank you, sir, for uh, for your services uh, and your sacrifices, and uh, and and thanks to your wife as well. Because I know that when people serve in the military, it's not just them who's serving; their families are serving and sacrificing right along uh, with them. So thank you, Kyle, and thank you to your wife as well. 
Uh, Kyle says, I love the new show. I find it very interesting hearing about your journey of moving to the farm. As an avid listener to the Cam and Company show, and thank you for that as well, I find it great to hear your insight on things other than the Second Amendment. Don't get me wrong, I love guns and the Second Amendment. I especially enjoyed hearing from Miss E for the first time with her bacon rub recipe. My wife and I have the same dream of moving into the country in the near future. Right now, we live in a mobile home park, trailer park, because of the cheap rent while we pay off student loan debt and save 40% down for a house. We have a small garden, so I know that I'm interested in your gardening experiences. I know the show will primarily appeal to folks who watch or listen to your other shows because it's almost like catching up with an old friend who went on a trip. This is an aspect we didn't get much before. I can't wait for future shows. I wish the best for you and your family, and thank you for the new content. Well, Kyle, first of all, man, thank you so much. That uh, uh, that really means a lot to me. And I wish you and your wife the utmost uh, success in your future endeavors. It sounds like you are doing it the right way uh, by putting a big chunk down and being able to save and knowing that sometimes you have to sacrifice and you have to delay your gratification. Kyle, that alone is a huge lesson that a lot of people never learn, and I applaud you for that. Uh, so, so good for you uh, for doing it. And you know, you've got a small garden right now. Uh, not much difference, basically, between a small garden and a big garden, except uh, the amount of time that you have to spend taking care of it. So, uh, hopefully, we can uh, learn some stuff together this growing season. And again, it's just it's it's great to have you and your wife uh, as a listener. Thank you so much. Um, you know, and, and as far as the, uh, the, the this show sort of being like catching up with an old friend who went on a trip, that's actually a, a great way of describing it. I mean, I, I want that, as I said, I think on the last episode, that sort of front porch feel, right? I'm really looking forward to it not being uh, 11 degrees as it was this morning so I can be on the front porch. But February has a way of reminding you that uh, spring is, is, is soon to come, <laughs> but it's not here yet. I always forget how awful February is in in Virginia. It is February and early March are the worst months of the winter in Northern Virginia. And I, I don't know why I never remember that. Um, in Oklahoma, by the time early March rolls around, you're getting ready to get into tornado season. So, uh, but Virginia, it's different. Virginia, the, the winter sort of creeps in. Uh, last winter was really hard and really long. This has been a, a pretty mild winter, but uh, February is just awful. Uh, so, of course, I uh, took advantage of the opportunity to get away from the awful weather uh, of Virginia, and I headed north <clears throat> to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and the uh, truly fantastic uh, and great Great American Outdoor Show, which is a nine-day outdoor show. Uh, this year it ran February 7th through the 15th. Uh, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and it, it's amazing. It used to be called the Eastern Sports and Outdoor Show. It uh, actually shut down in 2013 because the the uh, the show organizer, the promoter, uh, banned semi-automatic rifles from the show and a lot of vendors. And it didn't start with the gun companies, which was really interesting. It started with the the archers and the anglers and the boat manufacturers, people got so ticked off that a, a product was being banned from the show that they pulled out. And ultimately, the, uh, the show was canceled. Well, the city of Harrisburg wanted somebody to take over the show, and so they looked for uh, a, 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 an entity that could do that, and they ultimately picked the NRA. And uh, 2014 was the first year of the Great American Outdoor Show. This year was the second year. It was an amazing first year. I mean, everybody was just so happy when you when you talk to people who had been going there for a long time. This year, I got to say, was bigger 
and better than ever before. It is – you can't call something that gets, you know, more than a, a quarter million people coming to it uh, a, a secret. You can't. But this is a uh, a, a national show. It, it It's well worth your time to make it up there over that nine-day period. Uh, it's truly incredible. And give yourself a couple of days. There are over a thousand vendors and exhibitors, and it's you know everything from it's 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 the outdoor show. So it's hunting, fishing, uh, shooting sports. It's uh, camping. It's you know hiking boots. It's binoculars. There's a shooting sports hall. So it's almost like a consumer version of the shot show. There are seminars going on every day. There are uh, country concerts. There was a, a NRA Foundation banquet. It was like a Friends of NRA dinner. Uh, second biggest in the country, uh, second only to the one that's held at the uh, NRA annual meeting. Refused to be a victim programs going on every day. There was a family fun zone. I mean, it was it was awesome. It was really, really cool. And it was great to meet, again, it was great to meet people uh, who watch the show and those who listen to the show as well. It's just, I don't know, it's just, I, I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of about going to the NRA annual meeting and you know, I, I sit in a room with a lot of cameras and a lot of uh, ability to to talk with people online. But there's just no substitute for having a face-to-face conversation with somebody, I, I don't think, anyway. Uh, so it was a great, great time. And there were a lot of great folks there. I got to see uh, my friends Chris and Casey Kiefer. Um, uh, got to see my friend Scott Laseth, the uh, sporting chef. Um, John Anoni from Camp Compass came over with his uh, his son, and that was a, a it was great to see them. What a great story! Uh, uh, look into Camp Compass if if uh, you don't know uh, John's story, but he's doing great work up there in northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, taking at risk kids and, and getting them into the great outdoors. Uh, Chef Albert Wush uh, from Indiana University of Pennsylvania was there. Uh, he was he was butchering a deer a day. Uh, I got to meet Chef Albert uh, last year. It's always cool to see a guy in the uh, the chef's coat with an NRA hat on, right? I mean, that's, you, you got to like that. And and Chef Albert is so cool. Uh, he We did a, a segment, actually, uh, where we were uh, cooking with a pressure cooker. And it was really interesting, actually. Uh, he was telling me, you know, he's butchering a deer a day, and he's doing this uh, as a seminar. And he's getting several hundred people showing up wanting to know how to butcher this deer. And I said, so who comes to... A seminar like this. I mean, you're obviously getting hunters, right? But is there a particular type of hunter that you're getting? And he's, he said there were a lot of different varieties of, of people who were showing up, uh, main categories. He said there were the guys who have been hunting for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, and they want to know if they've been doing it right all this time. And then he said there are the, uh, the hunters who are harvesting uh, more than five deer a year, or it's getting to the point where they're harvesting enough deer that it, it financially it makes sense for them to learn to process the deer themselves rather than take it to a processor. He said, then you're getting the, uh, I think he called them the, the back-to-the-earth types, uh, folks who want to know more about where their food comes from, and they want to eat natural. And so wild game is about as natural as you can get. Uh, and so they're taking up hunting, and they want to learn uh, how to do it the right way. So then you're getting, and I, I and that's a that's a growing group, by the way. And then he, and he said, along with those folks are people who are also uh, getting their they're they're moving to a small farm. They're uh, 
just you know trying to explore as much as they can, even in the confines of perhaps even the, the suburbs or the city of rural life. And he said that's a, a growing segment as well. So it was a it was a, a pretty diverse group of people uh, who were attending this seminar. A lot, young, old, again, people who uh, who are who are living in you know places like Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or right there in Harrisburg, uh, or or you know even as far away as uh, North Jersey, uh, along with the the grizzled. Uh, hunters who have been hunting the woods of Pennsylvania for uh, longer than I've been alive, who, again, want to, want to learn. They want to know uh, because these guys know that, that you, you never stop learning. You never stop figuring out a better way to do something, whether it's to uh, uh, hunt that deer or to harvest that deer. So it was a it was a really great experience. Like I said, if you can make it to the Great American Outdoor Show uh, next year, do so. Take a couple of days off. To, it's a beautiful drive, by the way. I got to say, from uh, from Central Virginia, holy moly! And uh, so it's freezing now in Central Virginia. I talked about the frozen tundra. It was eleven degrees this morning with a uh, wind chill below zero when I was doing the morning chores. Um, but I'm not complaining because, uh, well, as I'm doing this, Miss E is actually outside, uh, working and I'm inside where it's warm. So no complaints. Uh, but the day that I drove up to Harrisburg, it was beautiful. It was 70 degrees, uh, in central Virginia. And the drive takes you uh, basically right up interstate 81. Uh, you cross over the, the Blue Ridge mountains and you hit the Shenandoah Valley and you take 81 all the way into Harrisburg. But in order to cross the Blue Ridge Mountains, you have to cross the Blue Ridge Parkway, which is a two-lane road uh, that, that winds for about 500 miles or so uh, down through the Blue Ridge Mountains. It was a works project uh, administration, Civilian Conservation Corps. It was a, it was a, a Great Depression works project. Um, unlike... The failed stimulus, unlike the green jobs that just sort of disappeared and the cars that cost $200,000, you know, you can at least say uh, back in the 1930s that these works programs were on real, honest-to-goodness infrastructure projects, right? Um, and, you know, it's a, uh, I do have to say, aesthetically, <laughs> it's a beautiful drive. Uh, so before I hopped on Interstate 81, I detoured a little bit, and I did 40 miles or so on the Blue Ridge Parkway, winding back and forth up the mountains, and it was well worth the extra time. All right, we're going to step away for just a moment or two. When we come back, Salon, this piece at Salon on how you, most people, uh, you can't make a living being a farmer. I wish somebody would have told me this. Stick around. There's more 40 Acres and a Fool coming up right after this. You're listening to 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Forty Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards returns now on the Blaze Radio Network. So I asked last week about uh, growing determinate tomatoes versus indeterminate tomatoes. 
And uh, I heard from uh, a couple of you, Tyler uh, wrote in, said, uh, I've grown both. In my experience, the biggest difference is in growth pattern. Determinate tomatoes, those are the ones that grow, you know, they all get ripe at the same time and then, boop, you're done. Determinate tomatoes tend to grow in a little more compact bush form, which doesn't require staking or caging. Uh Uh-huh. The uh, indeterminate varieties are more sprawling, requiring staking or caging, and often even pruning to gain the greatest outcome. The determinate varieties are generally what commercial growers grow because of the lack of labor and materials required for staking and the focus of harbor, uh, harvest labor. Indeterminates tend to have the best, often most intense flavors, but require more attention. Also, in my experience, I regularly had determinate tomatoes bear straight through until frost, but with somewhat less vigor than the indeterminate varieties. Today, Tyler says, I grow both, choosing determinate Roma type for canning sauce and stewed tomatoes. At any rate, Tyler says, uh, uh, these are my experiences. Tyler has more, uh, by the way, on, on chickens that uh, I want to get to as well. Um, but, uh, Tyler, thank you for that. Uh, and and it, it is, I think, uh, true. All the way, uh, I've, I've checked with uh, Miss E on this as well. She uh, concurs with, uh, with Tyler as well as um, with Bill, who wrote in as well. And thank you, Bill. Says he's been a fan of Cam and Company for years. Misses the ability to send the talkback messages. Well, first of all, there is still that ability, Bill. Uh, you can click the cap at nranews.com. There's the ball cap where you can ask Cam. Just click the cap. And by the way, please please make sure that you enunciate between those two words. Ask Cam. Thank you. Don't slur that, Bill. Um, but just click the ball cap and you can send me a, a question or just the email address is ask. Cam at nranews.com. Bill says, Cam, I think there are two primary reasons someone would grow determinate tomatoes. One, the space constraints. And two, all the fruit is ripe at the same time, so you can do your canning all at once. So there you go. Uh, And and that makes a great deal of sense. We, uh, like I said, we we primarily grow indeterminate tomatoes. Uh, We do a, uh, what's called a Florida fence, which is, it's it's not to me as intensive as staking. My my uh, wonderful wife uh, learned this, uh, found a farm hack somewhere, and uh, it's actually great. You just put you know, and we have raised garden beds, so as I mentioned, uh, so we put uh, a, a two uh, you know, fence posts down on either end, run length of twine uh, in between the two fence posts, and then basically you just train the tomato plant to to, to go between the uh, twine, and that provides the support that it needs. Uh, It does not, unfortunately, provide a caged protection against rabbits or uh, other groundhogs um, or even the occasional chicken or uh, other creature who would want to eat your tomatoes, which is why, actually, we're sticking with the, the smaller varieties this year primarily because... I would say last year, 75% of the larger tomatoes that, that we grew, we didn't get to eat. Uh, a critter ate them first. And they didn't seem as interested in touching the, uh, the great-sized tomatoes or even the Roma-sized tomatoes. Um, once you got into the, you know, the beefsteak size, that's when they started taking bites out of them. So I, I don't, I, and I can't tell you the... The reason, uh, if I could figure that, I'm not the rabbit whisperer, unfortunately, but uh, but that was our experience. So that's one of the reasons why we're growing primarily smaller uh, tomatoes. Although, once we have the uh, greenhouse and, uh, and and maybe even uh, larger tomatoes up uh, closer to the house, we're thinking about having a, a secondary garden in the 
front yard where uh, there was a big, huge locust tree growing that we had to cut down before it collapsed into the house. And um, it, 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 it does get some sun. It's just an awkward, weird space. And so we're thinking about having maybe a, a container garden up there and doing something with it. But uh, we'll have, I, I think, uh, more tomatoes of uh, both varieties than we probably know what to do with. Uh, this year. So uh, anyway, so that was the uh, the response on the uh, determinate tomatoes. And thank you for uh, for your wisdom and your expertise in sending that in. Now, speaking of wisdom and expertise, there was this article at uh, Salon. What nobody told me about small farming. I can't make a living. Jacqueline Moyer writing at Salon. And I realize, by the way, that uh, writers of these pieces don't always get to choose the headline. But I'd be very, uh, I'd be a little upset with uh, with Jacqueline uh, if she didn't get a chance to uh, approve that. Uh, because this is something that you, you should know before you buy a farm. This is nothing new. Uh, that most farmers derive their income from off-farm activities. Jacqueline, uh, her farm's in the foothills of Northern California, 40 miles east of Sacramento on 10 acres, that uh, she and her partner Ryan lease from a land trust. So they're not buying the uh, the land, they're renting it. Uh she said, uh, 10 acres of certified organic vegetables trace the contours of a small valley floor. Tomatoes grow, uh, glow crimson. Flowers bloom zinnias, lavender, daisies. Watermelons grow fat, littering the ground like peach balls. But she said, uh, when people would ask how are things going, she'd say, great. She never said, well, we're making ends meet, but we work 12-hour days, six days a week, and we pay ourselves only what we need to cover food and household expenses, $100 per week. Jacqueline says, I didn't tell anyone how over the course of the last three years since Ryan and I had started our farm, I'd drained most of my savings. I didn't admit that the only thing keeping the farm afloat was income Ryan and I earned from other means, Ryan working as a carpenter and I as a baker. I didn't say that despite the improvements we made to the land, the hundreds of yards of compost we spread, the $1,000 we spent annually on cover crop seed to increase soil fertility, every weed we pulled, we gained no equity because we didn't own the land. I didn't say I felt like I was trying to fill a bathtub when the drain was open. You know, I... I realize that the name of the show is 40 Acres and a Fool. And the last thing that I want to do is, is to come off as, well, you should have known better, right? Because there are all kinds of things that we don't know until we know them. But I, I read, I mean, one of the reasons why I decided and why I've always wanted to live on a farm is because of a, a guy named Jesse Stewart who was a writer in Kentucky, uh, was once the uh, Poet Laureate of Kentucky. And in uh, ninth grade English, my uh, teacher assigned us The Thread That Runs So True, which was a, a book about his experience as a, a teacher and uh, a principal and as a superintendent in the uh, Kentucky school system back in the uh, 19, I guess it was 19, uh, early 1930s, late 1920s. And Jesse Stewart was a, uh, was a farm boy. Uh, very clearly, and he was not a, a well-to-do farm boy. He was a he was a poor farm boy living in a poor state uh, during the Great Depression. That's 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 pretty poor, all things considered, you know. And Jesse's dad, 
uh, was a guy named Mitch Stewart. I, 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 I want this slate writer to read uh, Jesse Stewart's book, Beyond Dark Hills. And I wish that she had read it actually before she started farming. Because Mitch Stewart worked as a miner every day for about 12 hours a day, walked to work and back. Uh, so he was gone for about 12 hours a day. And he farmed uh, his homestead. It was, uh, and he didn't own the land, by the way. He had to rent. And there was a cycle that they would go through where uh, because Mitch Stewart was, was pretty poor, you know, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't uh, become a Rockefeller when you were working in the mines. Uh, they'd find a cheap place of land, usually uh, back up in a hollow somewhere. They would uh, work to clear it out. They'd improve the land. They'd maybe get uh, one or two good harvests in, tobacco to uh, pay bills and uh, food for you and the livestock. And then the landlord would uh, raise the rent of the improved land and, and the stewards would have to move on. Now, Jesse Stewart, uh, when his book started selling, he bought a lot of that land back. Actually, he bought it for the first time. Um, he acquired, uh, ultimately, uh, most of the land that his family had had rented there in what was called W. Hollow, not far from Ashland, Kentucky. But Jesse Stewart wasn't able to buy that land because he was a successful farmer. He was able to buy that land because he became a successful author. This has always, unfortunately, been a, a feature of uh, farming and, and of agriculture, is that most of your income doesn't come from, uh, for most farmers, most of your income doesn't come from the farm. Why is that? I, I think it's a, I, I think it's a basic problem that has become uh, more exacerbated by uh, technology and globalization. You know, food is one of those things that for most people, we want to acquire it as cost-effectively as possible, right? Most people are not conspicuous consumers of food. Most people don't want to pay $12 for a pound of bacon, even if it was, you know, farm-raised, uh, pasture-fed pork. Most people don't want to do that or could afford to do that. So, you know, selling heritage uh, uh, pork and heirloom vegetables and farm locally sourced zinnias, these are great things, but they are niche markets. And I, I, I think you are, uh, you're more than foolish to say, I'm going to make a lot of money as a farmer. I'm not saying it can't happen, okay? I know that it can, but it's very difficult, uh, and there's always going to be some luck involved. And, and uh, frankly, I would always counsel people to assume that they're going to have to uh, provide some sort of off-farm income uh, in order to pay the bills and, and pay the rent and uh, you know take you to the movies or uh, buy you a pizza every now and then. Uh, you can work towards that, that goal of financial independence, but I, I, would, I, would, I would tell you right off the bat 
that uh, that is not the experience of most farmers, and it is not the experience of most farmers throughout history. That is a fact of life for farmers, is that this is something that often primary love, but it's not what pays the bills any more than uh, singing is what pays the bills for people who, who love to sing. They, they sing in the church choir. They uh, go out to karaoke night or people who love to act or people who are passionate about other things, but it's not necessarily their living. Uh, I, I think that actually is a growing uh, experience for a lot of Americans. And, and maybe they have that dream of one day being independent, but, but maybe it's uh, not about making a living from farming. Maybe it's about farming, right, or gardening or beekeeping or, or just having that, that, that place that uh, uh, isn't surrounded by tens of thousands of people. I think that's very important for a lot of people. And, and I think that's a, a, a very valid reason to push yourself to, uh, to, to move to the farm, to simply start growing vegetables. Uh, just because you want to have that connection, that's that's perfectly valid. Because you want to become rich, because you want to become the next Joel Salatin, good luck with that. All right, we're going to step uh, away for just a moment here. When we return on 40 Acres in a Fool, uh, I want to get to our, I guess it's sort of become our forgotten books segment here. Um, we're going to take a look at a book called The American Citizen's Handbook that I picked up at a an estate sale. Not long after we moved here, it's a uh, it's a great book. It was a great find as well. Stick around. We'll be right back with more Forty Acres and a Fool right after this. Forty Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Forty Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. So one of the things that I like to do on the weekends before the garden gets too intensive uh, is is go to auctions or estate sales around here. First time we went to one, uh, I didn't really know what to expect. It was it was actually really cool. The uh, local volunteer fire department was out there and they were selling. I think they had barbecue sandwiches and hot dogs, uh, and the uh, the auctioneer was you know the old school auctioneer. Hey, did a little bit right, super duper fast. Uh, actually, we we what we bought there that day. I think my wife bought uh, something, but we bought a dollhouse for my daughter, and it was it was very similar. Actually, it was the same one that my wife had as a, a little girl, and it was a metal dollhouse. It was made of of tin. And what was really cool is that the the original owner of that dollhouse, who is now a uh, a woman in her mid eighties, uh, was there. And Catherine, my daughter, got to, a chance to talk with her. Uh, and she still has the dollhouse, still plays with it. It's from the I believe the nineteen forties or so. Um, nothing real special about it, except that uh, we know where it came from. We know the uh, the woman who used to be the little girl who played with it, and it's. It's a, a unique memento. I hope one day that uh, my daughter gets to pass it on to, to her daughter. Um, I was looking at some antique radios at that, at that auction. I didn't end up buying one, but uh, a woman who was there overheard me, uh, saw me bidding, and said, hey, you know, if you want an old radio, let me know, because I, was, I, I collect. My, my house is decorated in the uh, 1940s, and I was looking for an old radio myself, and I ended up 
buying several of them, so I've got a couple of extra ones if you're interested. I said, great. Uh, it turns out she and her husband have sort of an antiques business, uh, but they're, they're really not open except a couple of times a year. And she said they just happened to be open the next weekend. They had a, a couple coming up from the Virginia Beach area. So I said, oh, this is fantastic. So the next weekend we uh, we drove down. This place was enormous. I mean, it was four or five buildings worth of stuff. It, it uh, The American, was it the American Pickers? They, they would have loved this place. And we're looking around and they had a, uh, a, a room that seemed to be just entirely full of uh, old manual typewriters that uh, they were stacked up to the ceiling. There was a room full of old windows and uh, old doors. And uh, yes, there was a, a, a several, uh, six or seven old radios ranging from the small tabletop models to the, the big, massive floor models. Uh, and I ended up buying a uh, an old radio from her. It, it doesn't work. It is uh, purely decorative at the moment. But it was, it was, it was a uh, it was a good deal. And and looking around at other stuff, I, I found a book. It was called the American Citizen's Handbook, uh, and I, I I bought it from her for a dollar. I found out actually I, it was a really good deal. They're going for about a hundred bucks uh, on Amazon right now. This book is fascinating to me. It was originally published in 1941. Uh, by the National Education Association, the Teachers Union. It uh, it is full of, uh, well, let's see, your citizenship, uh, Franklin's plan, Benjamin Franklin, not not Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, your citizenship, the tenth generation, heroes and heroines of American democracy. People that uh, we've never heard of before: Asa Gray, botanist. Maria Mitchell, uh, librarian of the Nantucket Athenaeum and professor of astronomy at Vassar, discovered a comet in 1847, <laughs> uh, as, as well as people that you have heard of, like Theodore Roosevelt, Daniel Webster, James Madison. Have we heard of Daniel Webster anymore? Uh, Declaration of Independence. There are uh, various charters in here, including the, uh, the Constitution, Washington's Farewell Address, the Gettysburg Address, Charter of the United Nations... This was uh, widely uh, published and, and was probably found in most every school library. Uh, the version that I have is the fourth edition, which came out in 1951. Uh, they say there's a, uh, a couple of uh, differences, uh, including the inclusion of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights along with the UN Charter of the Constitution for UNESCO. Uh, also, the inclusion of materials on 4-H clubs uh, is included in the fourth edition of the American Citizens Handbook. There's a section, my favorite section, actually, is a, a section on, on creeds, the golden treasury of creeds, pledges, and codes. And there are two of them that, uh, that I really, really like. The first, and you may have heard me if, uh, if you listen to Cam and Company on NRA News on a regular basis. Uh, it's been a while since I've, I've talked about this, but I, I, I have mentioned this on several occasions. It's called the Code of the Good American. Uh, and the Code of the Good American was uh, written by William J. Hutchins. It was awarded first place in a prize of $5,000 in a national competition conducted in 1916 by the Character Education Institute of Washington, D.C. 
And this was designed to be given to new voters or perhaps even uh, uh, new citizens of the United States. Citizens who are good Americans, this is the code of the good American. Citizens who are good Americans try to become strong and useful, worthy of their nation, that our country may become ever greater and better. Therefore, they obey the laws of right living, which the best Americans have always obeyed. To become worthy of their nation. <laughs> uh, boy, there's a, there's a phrase that, that seems kind of, I don't want to say outdated, but uh, I can't imagine our president saying that, for instance, right? I mean, you know, this country has done some pretty horrible things. So what does it take to be a good American? And again, keep in mind, this is originally from the 1940s. Number one, first, first and foremost, the law of self-control. The good American controls himself. Those who best control themselves can best serve their country. I will control my tongue and will not allow it to speak mean, vulgar, or profane words. I will think before I speak. I will tell the truth and nothing but the truth. I will control my temper and will not get angry when people or things displease me. Even when indignant against wrong and contradicting falsehood, I will keep my self-control. I will control my thoughts and will not allow a foolish wish to spoil a wise purpose. I will control my actions. I will be careful and thrifty and insist on doing right. I will not ridicule nor defile the character of another. I will keep my self-respect and help others to keep theirs. So that's, that's the uh, foundational, <clears throat> the first thing you have to do. Number two, the law of good health. I'm not going to read verbatim every one of these, by the way. The, uh, the law of good health. The good American tries to gain and keep good health. Try to take such food, sleep, and exercise that will keep me always in good health. I'll grow strong and skillful. I'll protect the health of others. I will avoid those habits which would harm me and will make and never break those habits which will help me. Uh, Number three, the law of kindness. The good American is kind. In America, those who are different must live in the same communities. We are of many different sorts, but we are one great people. Every unkindness hurts the common life. Every kindness helps. Therefore, I will be kind in all my thoughts. I will bear no spites or grudges. I will never despise anybody. Number four, the law of sportsmanship. The good American plays fair. Clean play increases and trains one's strength and courage and helps one to be more useful to one's country. Sportsmanship helps one to be a gentleman, a lady. Therefore, I will not cheat, nor will I play for keeps or for money. I will treat my opponents with courtesy and trust them. If they deserve it, I will be friendly. If I play in a group game, I will not play for my own glory, but for the success of my team and the fun of the game. I'll be a good loser or a generous winner. Number five, the law of self-reliance. The good American is self-reliant. Self-conceit is silly, but self-reliance is necessary to citizens who would be strong and useful. I will gladly listen to the advice of older and wiser people. I will reverence the wishes of those who love and care for me, and who know life and me better than I. I'll develop independence and wisdom to think for myself, choose for myself, act for myself, according to what seems right and fair and wise. I will not be afraid of being laughed at when I am right. I will not be afraid of doing right 
when the crowd does wrong. When in danger, trouble, or pain, I will be brave. A coward does not make a good American. We have uh, just a few more to go. Number six, the law of duty. The good American does his duty. The shirker and the willing idler live upon others and burden fellow citizens with work unfairly. They do not do their share for their country's good. Number seven, the law of reliability. The good American is reliable. I'll be honest in word and in act. I will not lie or sneak or pretend. I will not do wrong in the hope of not being found out. I will not take without permission what does not belong to me. A thief is a menace to me and to others. Number eight, the law of truth. The good American is true. I will be slow to believe suspicions, lest I do injustice. I will avoid hasty opinions, lest I be mistaken as to facts. I will hunt for proof and be accurate as to what I see and hear. I will learn to think that I may discover new truth. Number nine, the law of good worksmanship. The good American tries to do the right thing in the right way. The welfare of our country depends upon those who have learned to do in the right way the work that makes civilization possible. Therefore, I'll get the best education possible, and I'll learn all that I can as preparation for the time when I'm grown up and at my life work. I'll take real interest in work and will not be satisfied to do slipshod, lazy, and merely passable work. I'll make the right thing in the right way to give it value and beauty even when no one else sees or praises me. But when I have done my best, I will not envy those who have done better or have received larger reward. Envy spoils the work and the worker. Number 10, the law of teamwork. The good American works in friendly cooperation with fellow workers. One alone could not build a city or a great railroad. One alone would find it hard to build a bridge. That I have bred, people have made plows and threshers, have built mills and mined coal, made stoves and kept stores. As we learn better how to work together, the welfare of our country is advanced. In all my work with others, I will be cheerful. Cheerlessness depresses all the workers and injures all the work. When I've received money for my work, I will be neither a miser nor a spendthrift. I will save or spend as one of the friendly workers of America. Uh, and last, the law of loyalty. The good American is loyal. If our America is to become ever greater and better, her citizens must be loyal, devotedly faithful in every relation of their life, full of courage and regardful of their honor. I'll be loyal to my family. In loyalty, I will gladly obey my parents or those who are at their place and show them gratitude. I'll be loyal to my school. In loyalty, I will obey and help other peoples to obey those rules which further the good of all. I will be loyal to my town, my state, and my country. In loyalty, I will respect and help others to respect their laws in the courts of justice. I will be loyal to humanity and to civilization. In loyalty, I will do my best to help the friendly relations of our country with every other country and to give everyone in every land the best possible chance. I will seek truth and wisdom. I will work and achieve, if I can, some good for the civilization into which I have been born. If I try simply to be loyal to my family, I may be disloyal to my school. If I try simply to be loyal to my school, I may be disloyal to my town, my state, and my country. If I try simply to be loyal to my town, state, and country, I may be disloyal to humanity. I will try above all things else, to be loyal to humanity. Then I shall surely be loyal to my country and my state and my town, to my school and to my family. And this loyalty to humanity will keep me faithful to civilization. 
He who obeys the law of loyalty, wrote uh, William J. Hutchins, obeys all of the other ten laws of the good American. In other words, the code of the good American, like most of the other uh, codes out there, boils down to the golden rule. I realize I could have just, you know, recited the golden rule and probably saved you a few minutes, but uh, it's an interesting read anyway. The other uh, a, a creed that I love from this section is called the Country Boys Creed. It's, it's, it's actually not a, uh, a country boys creed anymore, I suppose. It's, uh, and it's gender neutral, actually, uh, even in its writing, except for the title. Um, but it's, it's, it's great. The Country Boys Creed. I believe that the country which God made is more beautiful than the city which man made. That life out of doors and in touch with the earth is the natural life of man. I believe that work is work wherever we find it, but that work with nature is more inspiring than work with the most intricate machinery. I believe that the dignity of labor depends not on what you do, but on how you do it. That opportunity comes to a boy on the farm as often as to a boy in the city. That life is larger and freer and happier on the farm than in town. That my success depends not upon my location, but upon myself. Not upon my dreams, but upon what I actually do. Not upon luck, but upon pluck. I believe in working when you work, and in playing when you play, and in giving and demanding a square deal in every act of life. The Country Boy's Creed, ascribed to Edwin Osgood Grover. Now there's a name, right? Mr. Edwin Osgood Grover. All right, we'll talk about a, another Mr., Mr. Freckles, just just Freckles, who is one of the goats on the 40 acres and who is really, really under the weather. Um, kind of touch and go. Actually, that might be a really bad uh, description. I'll fill you in all of the details. Plus, uh, we talk about the uh, all of a sudden the rise in, in, in talking of, quote-unquote, queer agriculture. Yep, stick around. There's more 40 Acres and a Fool right after this. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards returns now on the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks so much for joining us on another edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. And if you like what you hear, help spread it around. Uh, share a link on your Facebook page or on your Twitter feed or just, you know, tell folks in line at the grocery store about this amazing podcast that, uh, that you're listening to. I really appreciate it. I, I admit I'm horrible at self-promotion. It's not my favorite thing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm much better at just, you know, <laughs> talking with people, uh, than, than here's what I'm doing. Look at me now. I mean, that's why Cam and company, I, I think is, is so different than a lot of other shows out there because it's about the guests. It's not really about the host. So if you, uh, don't mind helping me promote the show, I certainly would appreciate it. Thank you again. As I mentioned, one of the goats on our farm has been sick this week. Mr. Freckles, who was one of the original goats, has a, uh, I guess, uh, kidney stones, uh, basically, and noticed it uh, last week. Apparently, this is pretty common for 
uh, dwarf goats, and Mr. Freckles is a uh, he's a dwarf goat. Really, uh, more common in goats from Africa, and uh, Mr. Freckles is a dwarf Nigerian goat. So uh, poor Freckles has been uh, he's been hurting all week long. The vet came out this week. Uh, uh, we've got a great vet, by the way, who uh, I, I'd actually would love to have on the show because he's fantastic, uh, and he's been doing this for uh, years and years, and uh, just a, a great guy. Um, he's not the, the you know, uh, silver-haired old farm vet. He's a dad. He's active in the Boy Scouts here in the area. Uh, he actually would like to come over and help hunt coyotes uh, on the property, so you got to love him, right? Uh, but he And you got to love him for helping the, uh, the, the goat out here. He came out this week, um, manipulated Mr. Freckles, shall we say, uh, and was able to express out some uh, pretty yucky stuff. And uh, the the other option was, you know, if if it doesn't look like he's getting better, um, you got you have to do that. You have to manipulate your goat. <clears throat> uh, and if that doesn't work, uh, there's you know a really expensive surgery, or you have to put you got you got to put them down. So that was uh, just a, a couple of days ago. Uh, I did note yesterday that uh, Mr. Freckles was walking around. He was uh, he was moving. He uh, yeah I I this sorry it's just one of those things. Uh, he was able to relieve himself. Uh, more than just a, a couple of drops, there was a steady stream, and it was a clear stream. So that was that's good sign. So uh, I'm 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 very pleased to report that uh, as of this recording, I have not had to manipulate Mr. Freckles, so to speak. And let's hope that remains the case. <clears throat> I feel weird teasing that as uh, as an update for, you know, stay tuned for future editions of 40 Acres and a Fool to find out if Cam stroked his goat. That just sounds awful. It just does, doesn't it? Oh. Stroke Your Goat was a great Billy Squire album, though. Uh, all right, so the other uh, story that I wanted to get to this segment, and by the way, I, I realized that I had uh, mentioned an email earlier from uh, Kyle. No, it wasn't. It was uh, not Kyle's uh, email. It was a... Uh, uh, email from Tyler about chickens and Tyler I tell you what I think I think next week we're going to be talking more about chickens because they're they're worth not just an entire segment I could talk about an entire hour about uh, chickens but I wanted to to talk about two stories I've seen recently uh, on this phenomena I, I didn't even realize it was a phenomena uh, queer agriculture I, first I saw a piece by Catherine Temp at uh, National Review Online who was uh, writing about a, a lecture that was being given at the University of California, Berkeley, the uh, Center for the Study of Sexual Culture called uh, Queering Agriculture, Food Security in the Nation's Capital, and the Crisis of Repro- Crises, excuse me, <clears throat> plural crisis, uh, Crises of Reproductive American Familism. Soak that in for a second there by uh, Bailey Keir, uh, who's a, a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Maryland in American Studies. So why queer agriculture? The uh, the the lecture uh, webpage asks, which is a great question. 
Uh, this seems like an odd question, uh, but becomes more obvious with research and analysis. This talk highlights vital ways queering and transing ideas and practices of agriculture are necessary for more sustainable, sovereign, and equitable food systems for the creatures and systems involved in systemic reproductions that feed humans and other creatures. Again, soak that in. Since agriculture is literally the backbone of economics, politics, and civilized, quote-unquote civilized life as we know it, and the manipulation of reproduction and sexuality are a foundation of agriculture, it is absolutely crucial queer and transgender studies begin to deal more seriously with the subject of agriculture. This talk highlights the normative ways that popular culture, food activism, and government regulations have framed sustainable food systems in the United States. The normative ways as opposed to the uh, the, the, the queering way, I suppose. By focusing on popular culture representations and government legislation since 9-11, it will become clearer how the growing popularity of sustainable food is laden with anthro-heterocentric assumptions of the quote-unquote good life, coupled with idealized images and ideas of the American farm and gender, radicalized and normative standards of health, family, and nation. Uh-huh. Here's the thing. I can think of uh, no difference in farming, in the techniques that you use, in uh, your daily routines, your daily activities, uh, whether you are straight or gay or transgender, right? You still have to weed the same way. Uh, you still have to harvest the same way. You still have to uh, deal with your animals. You still have to. You still have to do the same stuff. Your sexuality doesn't enter into the equation. It just it just doesn't. If I'm wrong, let me know. But uh, it shouldn't. It really, I mean, really, it really shouldn't, right? All right, so uh, in addition to the, uh, the lecture at Berkeley, which is, you know, it's Berkeley, uh, Modern Farmer Magazine also had a piece on, uh, this was back in January, uh, Raise the Flag High, Queer Farming in Rural America. Now, you know, again, it just it, it strikes me, first of all, that uh, not to be flippant, but I'm going to be a little flippant. Um, in the original sense of the word, you have to be a little queer to want to be a farmer in this day and age to begin with. Right. Um, the idea, I think, of this modern farmer piece is that, look, here are people who are who are different. They're not they're outside of the norm of rural life. Uh, what we think of as, you know, conservative rural America, and here come uh, transgender uh, farmers, here come lesbian farmers, here come gay farmers, and and there must inevitably be conflict when uh, these folks come in contact with, you know, traditional conservative rural America. And I got to tell you, it's just been my personal experience that that's not the case at all. Um, what I have found is that the, the really common attitude in at least where I live, and I, I think that it's a common attitude that is true across most of rural America, is your business is your business, and my business is my business. And I'm not going to get in your business if you don't get in my business. I, I think more than anything, what people don't like, and it's not, a, it's not an anti-gay agenda, it's not an anti-queer agenda, it's not an anti-anything agenda, other than it is an anti, it is a, it's a leave-me-alone agenda. 
it's it's a don't lecture me agenda. It's a I I just I don't want to be constantly told how to live my life and what to think and what to say and what to do. And that's why uh, I, I I came here. And maybe one of the reasons why you came here too is because you were tired of people telling you uh, how to think and act and be. Now, I'm just a fool, so you don't have to listen to me, but um, I tell you what, I'm not the only one who thinks this. Wise, wise woman of the mountains, Blue Ridge Mountains, Caroline Culler, Stewart, Virginia, just turned 106 years of age. She uh, eats a Reese's peanut butter cup every day, has a Pepsi Cola every day, doesn't like her veggies. I love this woman. And she was interviewed by the uh, local uh, uh, news down in uh, Roanoke, Lynchburg area. And uh, they asked her the secret to her longevity. And she did not credit the uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups or the Pepsi-Cola. What she said was, quote, I tended to my business and I left other people alone. And I think no matter who you are, gay, straight, transgendered, what, what, however you identify, whatever is important to you, when you're living in a, uh, in a rural area, you stick to Granny Color's advice. You tend to your business. You leave other people alone. Not only will you uh, be doing credit to yourself, you will, oddly enough, be uh, doing credit to your cause as well. Again, don't get me wrong. I'm not encouraging hermithood or anything, okay? I'm just saying that no matter what your cause is, be it gay rights or, or, or gun rights, um... I think in a rural area and and maybe even throughout the country, um, you are a good ambassador. You, you, you have the potential to be the best ambassador for what's important to you, not based on your sales pitch or uh, how many stats or uh, quotes and figures you can throw out there, but by, by who you are. Uh, and part of that is, in fact, not being a hermit. It is being involved in the community. It's, it's, it's being out there so that people can see who you are. Uh, you don't have to beat them over the head with it because they see for themselves exactly who you are. I think that's what uh, Granny Color was talking about when she said that she tended to her business and left other people alone. I could be wrong. She could have lived in a cave for 106 years, but that, that strikes me as kind of unlikely. All right, that is about uh, all the time we have for you on this edition of 40 Acres and a Fool. Send me those emails, 40acrefool at gmail.com is the email address. Again, 40acrefool at gmail. I would love to hear your stories, your questions, your comments. Uh, also on uh, Twitter, it's at Cam Edwards. On Instagram, it's at Cam Edwards. On Facebook, it's Cam Edwards 2A. I am not on Pinterest. I am not on Google+. I don't really uh, want to be... That social media is uh, quite enough. Thank you very much. All right. Until we meet again, be safe, have fun, live a little, learn a lot, and uh, we'll talk to you soon right here on 40 Acres and a Fool. This is 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network.